This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The FT. Hello and welcome back to a packed show this week on FT Science. We have a very distinguished guest for you, who I'm delighted was able to make it through London's tube strike to join us, Sir Peter Knight. We'll be talking to him later about his research into quantum optics. Also on the show, we hear from author Joanna Cavenna about how science impacts on her writing, continuing our theme of arts and science from last week. All my work is grappling with the idea of truth and sort of reality and who gets to say what is real. And so I'm very fascinated by science. And Science Magazine reports on an online experiment about how social networks affect the spread of behaviour. Information spreads much the same way as diseases do. The better your bit of information, the more infectious the disease, the faster it spreads. But not so with the spread of behaviour. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. Before we go on, I'd like to say hello to our guests. Our regulars are here, Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of the Science Council, and the FT's pharmaceuticals correspondent, Andrew Jack. Hello. Hello. Hi. And to this week's special guest, the physicist Sir Peter Knight from Imperial College. His work is concerned with quantum optics and quantum information science, which you'll be explaining later in the show. Welcome, Peter, and thanks for coming in. Hello. We'll start off, though, by hearing from Joanna Cavenna, author of The Birth of Love and the Ice Museum, and currently writer-in-residence at St. Peter's College, Oxford. She talked to the FT earlier today about the influence of science on her writing, and particularly her pursuit of what is truth. All my work is grappling with the idea of truth and sort of reality and who gets to say what is real. And so I'm very fascinated by science. You know, we're living in a relatively secular society. And so in terms of who has the status to, to tell us what, what might be real, I think scientists are, are sort of well up there in the hierarchy. I've always liked these characters. I mean, I put one of them in my latest novel, the, the character Ignaz Semmelweis, and there's another character, Wegener. These sort of characters who propose things that were at the time exceedingly controversial or were broadly denied and yet persisted in that and so I quite like those kind of people who were regarded at the time as a little bit renegade or as just outside prevailing orthodoxy and who yet carried on. I learnt a little bit about Ignaz Semmelweis when I was at school, but I then came back to him because I, I was reading um, quite a bit of writers like Celine, uh, Louis Ferdinand Celine, who's himself a bit of a renegade character. And he, he wrote a semi-fictional biography of Semmelweis and was clearly attracted too to this type. To the, you know, to the, the fact of a man who'd discovered really that childbed fever could be prevented from spreading if, 
if doctors on labouring wards wash their hands. You know, so effectively he, he revealed that childbed fever was simply caused by people being unclean. And this was a very simple revelation that was denied because it, it was out of keeping with the theories of the time. And so Semmelweis kept fighting for this theory to be accepted and, and simply said, you've just got to wash your hands. And he was absolutely right. He was later proven to be absolutely right when Pasteur and germ theory was generally accepted. When I was writing my first book, The Ice Museum, I was writing about the myth of this ancient land called Thule, the last land in the north. And this was originally based in fact um, that someone had actually been to this place in the 4th century. But as the years went on, it became embellished with fable, and um, so no one could quite work out what was true and what was false. And when I finally got to the last point of my journey, I arrived in Svalbard, and um, I went to this station where these amazing climate scientists were sitting up at you know, nearly 80 degrees north through incredibly inclement um, you know, temperatures and trying to understand what was happening to the ice in the far north. Not only were they assessing what was going on now, they were trying to predict what might happen you know, 50 years hence. And I thought that was fascinating that science is, is not only trying to understand the world that we live in, but also trying to shine a light into the darkness of the future. To me, that's both philosophically fascinating and also, I think, you know, fascinating in terms of, what, what, again, where is truth? Truth is not only in the present, but also what is the truth of the future? I didn't have a scientific background in any way, so I really admire these sorts of scientists like Michio Kaku, who wrote a brilliant book, Parallel Worlds, or Brian Greene, who's written these books um, explaining, you know, the elegant universe, those sorts of books explaining incredibly complex theories of say, string theory to what he perceives as a non-scientific audience. In something like Michio Kaku, you get a real sense that science is a philosophy, that, the, that Michio Kaku is talking all the time about things that are, are basically concepts and symbols, and so he's trying to unpack them, a whole sort of language of, of describing the world. Whether science replaces the yearnings for religious truth, whether, you know, whether it becomes effectively a religion, you know, in a way I can only speak for myself in this because it's incredibly personal, but I think, to me, it's, it's a debate constantly about where truth lies in your own mind. I think the notion of a sort of huge overarching truth that everybody has to subscribe to is, to me, quite peculiar. I never really understand, you know, why people posit them, why they sort of insist that others should understand them in the way that they do. These sort of tentative forays into enormous areas of darkness. I mean, the whole idea of things like dark energy and dark matter, I love those ideas because it's the whole acceptance that, you know, almost all of the universe is unknowable at present. I think that's an incredibly fascinating leap to make rather than saying we know everything, you know, we, we have this incredible theory. Well, science, dark matter, whether there's a God, they've all been very much in the news over the last week with the publication of Stephen Hawking's new book where he says, no, there couldn't possibly be a god, whereas before he said, well, there might conceivably have been a god. I think a very overblown controversy, but it was the splash on the Times front page for two days running. Peter, your brand of quantum physics is very different from the cosmologist's brand, but can you relate to that and the sort of things that Joanna has been talking about? Yes, of course. If you look at some of the things that uh, Stephen's been interested in, he was interested in very early stages of the universe and tried to describe them by quantum mechanics. And, of course, the major problem you have then is there's nothing outside of the universe to act as your observer. And since the whole basis of quantum mechanics is a sort of separation between observer and that that is observed, trying to quantize the universe is a hell of a challenge. 
Um, and so this is one of the most fundamental problems, in fact, of, of current physics. So Stephen is looking at some of the deepest problems ever about the very beginnings of the, of the universe or the multiverse. And yet at the same time, uh, he thinks, oh, right, if we can extrapolate right back to the very beginnings of this, there's no need for God. And I think he really does miss the point entirely and utterly about the nature of religion. Uh, my colleague Chris Isham from Imperial summed it up quite well in the time, saying, I don't think Stephen's ever read a philosophy book in his life. What do you think? Can one draw any conclusions at all about the nature of religion from quantum physics and cosmology and string theory and so on, or are they just entirely and completely separate? Well, I believe they're entirely separate. I think there's a confusion sometimes, and you hear scientists and the media and those in the religious areas mix up truth, science, belief, fact, and the words are not exactly the same. And um, it worries me that scientists talk about truth philosophy is about trying to understand the root to the truth. The science is part of how we might understand what truth is, but it isn't necessarily in itself truth. And I think then in the piece we were just hearing, there is that little bit of a confusion here about identifying the truth. So we have heroes who we want to believe mm -hmm. and underdogs who we also want to believe. Mm -hmm. And that's actually about the individual. It's not actually necessarily about what they're saying. Going back to the, the interview as well, though, it is wonderful to see that bridge on the other side between science and fiction in the most literal sense so it is wonderful to to hear creative writers at least trying to experiment a little bit with the realms of science both in terms of the extraordinary personalities as you were saying of a lot of the scientists who have had to fight against conventional wisdoms but also the search for wider greater truths or theories or principles and explanations i think of it even in my own son incidentally you know whether it's doctor who or the seven professors of the far north and some of those wonderful children's fiction novels that do, do engage with scientific ideas and engineering concrete examples in the world around which them you know inspire children not just in the world of fiction and imagination, but also in terms of what they study and what motivates them at school and beyond. Peter, let's talk more directly about your own branch of quantum physics and quantum optics and ultrafast lasers. How accessible is that? Tell us what you're doing. Well, what I've been trying to do over the many years that I've been at Imperial is to look at how light interacts with matter, with atoms, at the fundamental level. You know, the sort of light that we're talking about is usually from a laser. But it doesn't have to be. But what I'm interested in is where the, that interaction manifests itself in terms of this rather, rather strange quantum mechanical nature of, of those interactions. We all know from about 100 years now that light can be considered both as waves and as particles. It has this rather strange quantum aspect that Einstein was fascinated by. And for many years, this was a sort of almost like a philosophical game for physicists. But it's become quite practical. One, one can build new technologies based on this. Uh, the, the, the way that we actually measure time with an atomic clock is based on such things. The way that uh, you might want to send signals that are absolutely immune to eavesdropping in an absolutely secure cryptographic principle. All, all of these things actually rest on the basic ideas of quantum mechanics. So the game that we used to play with, when I was an undergraduate in the middle of the last century, these things were never terribly important in the sense that they, they, were, they were put in at the end of a quantum physics course. 
these rather spooky interactions that, that Einstein was fascinated by, but they've become centre point now in exactly what we're trying to do in quantum computing, in quantum cryptography, uh, and, and so on. So what I've been trying to do is to find a way of exploiting these peculiar quantum properties. Now, the clip that we've just heard talked about truth and reality. And one of the oddest things about quantum physics is that things only acquire characteristics through observation. And it would be a fundamental mistake to talk about those characteristics prior to observation. And that's the clue to how we can employ this in information processing and uh, some of the cleverest of the cryptographic protocols that people are beginning to explore are based upon the fact that nature isn't subjectively real until you make an observation. Now, you're intending, amongst other things, to try and observe photosynthesis because you have a hunch that that might, that biological process might have some quantum component. Absolutely. For, for many years, um, people have looked at the very short time nature right at the very beginnings of the photosynthetic process. And yeah, many people have, uh, have looked at this. George Porter's Nobel Prize was connected to these sorts of areas. And it's always thought to be fairly classical that the, the light energy is harvested and, and trundles along through a sort of a sequence of hops and then gets trapped somewhere and exploited in terms of, of basically turning it into chemical energy, often splitting water, for example. So it's not a very quantum thing, it looked like. But there's recent evidence to suggest that maybe quantum physics at the very early stage enables the natural molecules using photosynthesis to actually look around at the possibilities and explore those possibilities faster than classically allowed. Now, this was a kind of revelation to us because we've been trying to exploit exactly these quantum coherences to create a quantum computer. Quantum computer works by exploiting a thing called quantum coherence to speed things up. Um, so we've been playing around with trapped atoms, trapped ions, trying to build a very simple quantum processor that sees this quantum speed up of the way you explore, if you like, state space. And there's some early evidence that suggests that biological molecules in photosynthesis already are exploiting it. And that's kind of ironical, really, that you know, we bust ourselves for a decade trying to realise these things in an incredibly expensive laboratory, and maybe grass is doing it. And what about our brains? There has been speculation that human consciousness has something to do with quantum processes. Yes. Would you go that far? No. Um, the brain's warm and wet, and these are sort of alien to the sort of things that go on in, in terms of quantum physics. How can you possibly probe these processes? Well, what you need to do is to look on a very fast timescale because um, the, the ability of the system to exploit quantum effects has to be really fast before any information is lost to the outside world. That's a process called decoherence. So we have to look at it very fast. Nature's doing it very fast. And by very fast, I mean fantastically fast. So if you think about timescales, people are used to milliseconds, microseconds. Let's keep going. Then you get nanoseconds, picoseconds, femtoseconds. In fact, we have femtosecond lasers in our group. The next one down is attoseconds, and we run an attosecond consortium at Imperial. So peculiarly, the part of my group that does very fast things and the part of my group that do quantum stuff, we now have to try and talk to each other about how we could explore what's going on at this fantastic timescale. I'm afraid now it's time to move on 
to Robert Frederick and his report from Science Magazine in Washington. Thanks, Clive. Information spreads much the same way as diseases do. The better your bit of information, the more infectious the disease, the faster it spreads. But not so with the spread of behavior. Behavior actually spread faster in the networks that typically make information spread more slowly. Damon Santola studies behavioral and policy science at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. We've had a lot of research on the mathematics and physics side when we've been developing models for, you know, 10 or 15 years now. So there's, there's a lot of theory. <laughs> um, and so we had these kind of two theoretical perspectives, but no real way to test them. And that was really what motivated the idea of building these experiments. And in a paper on the latest issue of Science, Centola reports his experimental results that confirm that behavior spread faster and more widely across a clustered, grid-like social network versus a random network. Centola says the random network kind of looks like a bowl of spaghetti. And we have some nice mathematical results which show that the second kind, a bowl of spaghetti, is what we call a small world. It's very easy to navigate and very fast to get across. So in two or three steps, you can get to anyone from anyone. Whereas in the other network, it takes quite a large number of steps to get from anyone to anyone. It's kind of counterintuitive until you remember one thing, says Duncan Watts. Watts is a sociologist with Yahoo Research who studies the mathematics of collective behavior. To sort of oversimplify somewhat, ask yourself, how many times do you need to hear about something before acting on it? Or how many times do you need to be exposed to something before acting on it? usually more than once. And in the clustered, grid-like network, participants in the study were more likely than those in the random network to get a second, third, or more signals from others in their network to adopt the behavior themselves. Again, Duncan Watts of Yahoo Research, who is not affiliated with the study. He has set up a relatively straightforward and clean experiment that essentially eliminates every other possible explanation that you might have for why things spread, except for the network structure. The results? For the behavior Centola studied, which was whether participants joined an online health forum, the behavior spread to an average of about 54% of people in the clustered, grid-like network, but only about 38% of the participants adopted the behavior in the random network. In addition, the behavior spread four times faster in the clustered, grid-like network than in the random network. So moving forward, I suppose... Again, Duncan Watts of Yahoo Research. One could try to relax some of these constraints. One could try to make the experiment more realistic, the actions more consequential. But I don't think it's fair to be critical of that because he was trying to make a theoretical point, which is that the extent to which your friends are connected to each other can actually have an impact on the way that things spread. And he managed to show that. And, you know, now I think the onus is on the rest of us to try and make experiments like this more realistic and larger scale and, you know, all the other things that he might have done. For Science Magazine, I'm Robert Frederick. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Back to you, Clive. Thanks very much, Robert. I think what that's saying is that old-fashioned pre-computing, pre-IT social gatherings were a much more effective way of influencing behaviour than modern social networks. Andrew, what do you think? The personal referral seems to be a tremendously important driver in a lot of modern media, from what one understands. In other words, more and more, you don't just turn to a sort of trusted 
brand name media organization, for example, for your news and information, but you rely more and more on links from friends you know already. I'm not quite sure from that description exactly how this sort of clustered network is supposed to work in practice for their, their health network, but it seems to make some intuitive sense. Well, I, th- I mean, I think in the health forums, the internet probably is very effective, but we only have to go back to something like slimming clubs. You know, we know an enormous amount about whether if people join in groups and they join a group, they have more success than if they do internet sw- slimming, for example, when they're unconnected. And the bit about the connectedness to the messages, I mean, we understand so much and so well how the MMR scare was spread at the school gate with people who had quite a close network around them. And that, that was superficially informal, but actually they were trusting each other because they were already in a social network. So I think in a way we understand it, but I can see how difficult it is to devise a model that you can test. I think that's all we have time for today. Next week we'll be bringing you the show live from the British Science Festival in Birmingham. There I'll be talking to a number of interesting people, not least Lord David Sainsbury, who was arguably the best British science minister of the past few decades. All that's left for me now is to thank my studio guests, Peter, Diana and Andrew. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.